God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the ever-delightful Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how you doing? I am doing well. Delightful. Okay, well, you know, it's a Friday. It's very dreary here, um, but I had some uh, burrito tacos for lunch from oh, a bar. Okay. There's a barbecue food truck here. And, you know, I lived in Texas for 10 years. So, you know, the bar is kind of high when you live in Texas. And so, I, you know, this area is a little bit wanting. But let me tell you, this food truck knocks it out. And and their burrito tacos were just amazing. So So I got to Let's make some enemies right quick. Let's make some enemies right quick. Have you been to Memphis yet? uh, I've only passed through Memphis. Oh, have you had Memphis barbecue? I have not. Okay, I was gonna ask the <laughs> comparison between Memphis barbecue and Texas barbecue because there's, there's a you know, and then there's Kansas City barbecue yeah. and there's St. Louis barbecue and there's all the different kinds of barbecue. I have had St. Louis but... barbecue. I went to a rib joint, okay. waited in an hour, waited in line for an hour. <laughs> I'm like, these man, these better be some good ribs. Like I'll be talking about these That's ribs it. five years from now, kind of you know. Good. <laughs> And they were. Are you? They were Are you good. still? They were, they were All good. right, there you go. That's worth the hour. Well done, St. Louis. Worth an hour wait for your ribs. Um, speaking of food, you had a little bit of a, something happen this past weekend that we talked about in our last yes. episode. Pretty big event down your way in Roanoke. Uh, it was a, a, an event for Hispanic Heritage Month. So how'd that it go? It went very well. Um, you know, when I took oh, when I took this role um, for the the organization that I manage in a couple years, you know, very shortly, because I started in August 2019. And so, as you know, Hispanic Heritage Month is September 15th through October 15th. And so the outgoing executive director, you know, put a plug in my ear, hey, we should do something. And I thought, you know, and I had, it was a very small event. We had uh, bought in a band who had played at our festival. They do Latin pop. Um, there was one food vendor. Uh, there was a, a, a salsa demonstration. The mayor spoke. There was about 20 people there, you know. Right. So, you know, of course, COVID threw things by the wayside in, you know, 2020. But I had a vision for this event to be bigger. And let me tell you, mm. um, that it was. It was It was a three-hour uh, event. And it I had envisioned maybe six to eight vendors. We had 17. Four of them were food. I food, go. yes. Colombia, uh, Cuba, Mexico, and Philippines. And let me tell you, this food was fantastic. 
and then we had uh, two live bands. We had a, a dance um, from Argentina and some educational um, presentations of the city actually did a proclamation that was read by um, by the first Latina councilwoman uh, of the city of Roanoke and uh, the vice president of my board, who is from Venezuela. She's actually of Italian heritage, but she's from Venezuela. And it was just really, it was just, it was a, the weather was nice. It was just a fun event. I got a lot of good feedback. The most gratifying though, was t- uh, the feedback that I got from members of the Latino community saying how mm, much yeah. they appreciate it, how much they felt included. And that was the whole goal. So okay. it was there really, yeah, it was just, a, it was a really wonderful event. Amen. Well, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, at some point I got to get down there for one of these events and hang out. And, yes, and our festival. Eat up some good yeah, food, our so. festival brings all different cultures together. That happens in May. So, you know. Try to there work you that go. out. <laughs> Listen, any listeners who want to take a quick vacation to Roanoke, you want to aim for May and go have some good food, hang out with Lisa. She's awesome. So, um, all right. Well, I'm glad it was such a success. Congratulations. Well done. And thank you for doing something that really honors and celebrates uh, the many different Hispanic heritages and uh, Latino peoples that are out there. So that's awesome. Thank you. And um, we are today going to continue our conversation about what it means to be human and uh we ended our first episode if you remember with the simple statement that being human is good to enjoy being human i think we ended the last episode the same way as well to be human to be made in god's image um is something to be celebrated we ought to celebrate our humanity that's different than humanism it's just a it's a celebration of who God made us to be. We are human in all of our different shades and hues and ethnicities and cultures. Um, one of the things that is a part of this is something called a cultural mandate. And that's what we want to get into today. And uh, Lisa, I may be wrong on this, but this might be one of our most Presbyterian episodes in the entirety of the run of family discussion because we're talking cultural mandate and covenant of works today and uh that's about as presbyterian as you get so if you are hanging out with us and you are not a presbyterian that's okay follow along hopefully we don't lose you on this um and uh then hit us back let us know what you think about this you can reach out to us on twitter um lisa's also on facebook i'm on twitter and uh just let us know what you think Follow, subscribe, comment, um, and tell us about how you approach these issues around the cultural mandate and the covenant of works that you find in a couple different places in Genesis. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 both have a version of the cultural mandate and the covenant of works. And so, um, Lisa, you come at this from a different, um, I think, from a different faith tradition that you grew up in. So do I. We didn't get. We didn't grow up in Presbyterianism. So when you were first introduced the idea of cultural mandate, covenant of works, that kind of thing, um, what were some of the things that really stood out to you? What are some of the things that strike you about this idea of a cultural mandate? Well, I think there is some confusion when you hear cultural mandate. It's what it sounds like, and what some folks unfortunately make it to be 
is that, you know, when it comes to this question of how do Christians integrate and address um, culture, that you are imbibing the, you know, imbibing the culture. So in other words, it's like, how do we make Christianity compatible with culture? And that's not what the cultural mandate is. In fact, I don't even, I refer, I tend to refer to it as the creation mandate. Um, which I think in our, you know, reformed tradition is, you know, that's really more the verbiage. However, I think that we would be remiss to look at what the creation mandate is and not address culture. I mean, it has to be addressed. Um, I have my own thoughts about, you know, when it comes to, well, what's the responsibility of Christians' relationship to culture, but I think if you approach it from a creation mandate, you know, from the the context of creation, you know, looking at um, the first two chapters of Genesis and what God commanded the man and woman to do in that context, how does it apply to our 21st century um, environment? So, so when we talk about the creation mandate or the cultural mandate and apply it to culture, I think first we go to the scriptures and we see, okay, where is this actually found? And then we can start applying it to things like culture. And, and a question we may get to today, which will be helpful, is can cultures be right or wrong? And if so, how do you measure that? And I think that's something that we can get into because that's one of the things that's happened in a lot of the race and ethnicity conversation is um, it, it's there can be some pushback to say you cannot call somebody's culture wrong or somebody's culture sinful. And I want to get into why is that is that true or not true and why and we want to talk about that a little bit but first we got to get to what is the mandate itself and uh, a couple places where you can find it uh, one is in Genesis 1 starting in verse 28 so this is right after the creation of man and woman in the image of God God blessed them and so the creation mandate starts in blessing it's uh, it, God blesses them to do something and the image is given to them to carry out this mandate God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed, this food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Then I think you can also look at um, Genesis 2.15 as another little bit of a glimpse into the creation mandate or covenant of works. Um, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And there we see more of the activity of this, this first man who's been created to um, work the garden, to, to watch over it, to, to keep it, to guard it, some translations would say. Um, and so here we get glimpses of the cultural mandate. And I'm just going to list a couple things that stick out to me. And Lisa, if there's something I miss, hit, yell loudly. Um, the first is to be fruitful and multiply. So to fill the earth with the next generation, to have children. 
Um, this is part of the cultural mandate and something that the church should be celebrating is the having of children. This is not an across the board, especially when you bring sin into the equation. It's not an across the board if you don't have children, therefore you're violating scripture. That's not what I'm saying. But the people of God as a whole, having children and passing the faith down from one generation to the next is part of the cultural mandate that should be celebrated. And, and um, then there's the subduing of the earth which we'll talk a little bit more, and the ruling over the creatures that are on the earth, and then the use of the earth for resources, which is why he lays out, here's how you can, uh, here's what you should be able to eat from the earth. Um, so those are the things that stick out to me. You have, at least in Genesis 1, you have uh, procreation, the having of more children to fill the earth, the subduing of the earth, which we need to talk about, the ruling over the earth, and then the, the using of the earth for resources. Um, what what else is there in the creation mandate, do you think, that I'm, I'm missing? No, nothing, but, but one thing I think we... One thing we shouldn't do, right, is limit it to just agricultural concerns. We have to re remember the context in which this is taken place, in which, you know and connected to God's good creation, right? So he created the, you know, the birds, you know, the, all of the animals and the, the earth, and now gave a mandate to the man and the woman to take care of it. And I like one note, one commentary note says, so that it will yield service to them, right? But, but we have to consider that it was taking what was there, and making something, watching over it, making something of it so that it, it uh, continues the purpose for which it was created, because God said it is all good. So, you know, so in terms of the type of environment that was, you know, that was at that time, we have to consider, okay, well, how does that then apply to our environment now? Right. Because I think sometimes, you know, you, if you look at that and you reduce it to just what was there, then I think we miss a good chunk of what that creation mandate means for us. When you have, oh, gosh, um, you know, thousands of years of innovation and technology and advances and things of that nature, like what what do you do with that? And so that the intention of the mandate has, you know, that was applicable then in that context has to be applicable now in our context. Well, and, and it is uh, part of the subduing of the earth is to ensure that the earth continues to perform its function, which is to give glory to God. And that is beyond agriculture. That is in every aspect, right? And and part of the reason why the first man and woman are supposed to subdue the earth and to make sure that everything that's being used is to the glory of God is because they're made in God's image. And we talked last time about how this is um, this is a, a almost a royal type of a statement. This is a statement of um, of derived power. And what I mean by that is that the man and the woman have power to subdue the creation, not in themselves, but they derive that power because they are image from the one that they are imaging. So they are 
ruling as uh, viceroys, basically, on behalf of God over creation. They are God's representatives on the earth to care for the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. But then in 2.15, we get a little bit more of a glimpse as to what that actually looks like to work it and watch over it. Work it and guard it. And I think that also are those are helpful categories for us when we think about how we interact with creation um, and even with the innovations in our world to to watch over it, to guard it, to protect it, but also um, to sit there and work it, to actually get involved in it. So not just guard it from afar, but actually get in and cultivate. And, and that kind of cultivation is an agricultural, I agree with you, agricultural picture that is beyond agriculture and into every aspect of, uh, of our lives as we live in the created world. Right. And so there, you know, this is raises this question about, you know, there's this, this this debate about transforming culture. Right. Or, you know, what what have Christians to do with the, you know, with the culture? Well, for those of us who have been redeemed, who have eyes to see, um, who, whose eyes have been opened um, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We ought to be able to look at God's intention in his creation and ask the question, okay, what, what does that mean for us today, right? Because I, in other words, redeemed people should act redemptively in their environment. So I don't really understand the concept that says, well, we are just here to proclaim a message and gather in church, but we're not going to care about the impact that we have on our world. And for me, that's like saying, okay, you want an orderly house, right? You want your house to, you know, to, to be um, orderly and peaceful, but then you only focus on what the children do and say and how they behave towards the parents and how they behave towards each other while the rest of the house is in disarray. No, if you're, you bring shalom to an invite to whatever environment you find yourself in as you know, as agents of redemption. And that, does that mean we're necessarily going to transform culture? No, but we can, we can bring a, a piece of the kingdom, you know, a piece of what was intended, right? Um, into whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether it's our neighborhood, it's our work environment, um, you know, you name it, you know, civic organizations, it's how do we, you know, how do we bring about, um, you know, an environment that is going to reflect that intentional purpose? And, and the, one of the things that, that strikes me about this debate that's out there, particularly in the reform world around are we to be transforming culture or um, merely proclaiming the gospel, is it, it ignores the, the culturally transformative work of the gospel. If you are faithfully proclaiming the gospel, then people will be changing and culture will change. Mm -hmm. To expect that the culture would not change is to me to deny an aspect of the power of the gospel 
if it transforms people, it should also transform communities, and transformed communities transform culture. There is a ripple down. There, there's a ripple effect in this. Now, that doesn't mean that there will no longer be sinful cultures in the world, or there, that all culture will be purged of sin. I'm not arguing for some kind of like post-millennial utopia, but there is a way to use what is in the material created world for the glory of God and in so doing redeeming what even the the enemy would want for evil and using it for good to the glory of God and um, and here's here's the other thing and and maybe we're never going to be able to finish this episode now because I'm, I'm going to go there we're so worried about whether or not we should be transforming other people's culture when I don't think we've taken stock of our own culture and I'm talking evangelical culture Evangelical culture is a culture, first off. A lot of people don't think it is a culture. They think it's a theology. Well, I'm sorry, it's not. There's no theology to evangelicalism. Not really. I think it's Carl Truman who said that if Joel Osteen and John Piper are both, uh, are both evangelicals in the world, the word has no meaning. Um, I think he's right from a theological perspective. Absolutely. There's no, it, those two are so far from one another that it's impossible to say they share a theology. So evangelicalism can't really be defined by a theology. It is a culture. It's a historical movement with a culture that's built into it. And what we have seen over these last couple of years is that the culture is pretty dark and twisted and awful. And it needs to be addressed. And finally, we're starting to see people, after a lot of browbeating and hand-wringing, we're starting to see folks like our brothers and sisters in the SBC finally saying, hey, we have a culture problem here that we've got to take care of. Um, we've seen this in our own Presbyterian backyards in, in the last couple decades. We said, hey, there were some cultural things here that we really needed to address and deal with. And, and to the PCA's credit, for example, are addressing and continuing to address these issues of, of not just justice, but of the culture of the PCA, of the culture of the SBC, of the culture of evangelicalism. We've built our own culture, but what's disturbing to me is we've built our own culture in a way that does not reflect the kingdom. And we're supposed to be building a kingdom culture here. And so there is, there is a cultural mandate to build a culture, but it ought to reflect Jesus. And Jesus was always leading with compassion. He was always willing to be waylaid by the hurting. His preaching was his primary work but he was even willing to lay that aside from time to time to do the work of healing and miracles and caring for the people who were in need. And uh, there's a culture that gets built around that. What does our culture look like? Is our culture litigious? I'm talking in the church now. Is our culture litigious? Is our culture all about theological correctness but no orthopraxy whatsoever? Is our culture cold? Is our culture lacking emotion? Is our culture mean? Is it all emotion and no sobriety? What I mean, and, and to add to we that, have to ask the is, question: Is our is our cultural our culture more concerned about institutional power than the you know um, the power of the gospel taking root? Mm. Mm. Power, influence, clicks, celebrity. It's it's all there. It's built into our culture, and we have to ask the question: Is this reflective of the kingdom? Because the culture that we are to cultivate is to be one where we are 
working in it, but also protecting it, guarding it. When we get to the fall later this season, we're going to see that, um, this is one of my old, uh, one of my old professors, Lane Tipton, would say this. Um, he was at Westminster, now he's a pastor in the uh, Philadelphia area. He would say that um, when the serpent came in, Adam's role, Adam and Eve as the protectors of the garden, they've been giving this role, should have killed the serpent that moment. Mm. The heel should have crushed the head right then, but they failed to guard it. And we have to ask, her, are we guarding our culture, Christian culture, evangelical culture? Are we guarding it from ourselves and from our own sinfulness and our own desire to, to be more like the culture around us than like the kingdom of God? Right. And um, I would say, and now I would push back on that a little bit and say, you know, I wouldn't necessarily do such a broad stroke about um you know especially when you look at the sbc um uh, yeah the sbc and the um, pca um because i think what you'll find regardless of all of the drama that you hear about um you know in the go you know governing channels i mean it's congregational so as much as you know governing can be but I think what you'll find is across the board, there are churches who 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 are looking to preserve um, a culture for the sake of the kingdom and not for the sake of, you know, looking like the broader culture. Um, you'll find that in the PCA, there are, you know, so many faithful churches. Um, and so that, and that's one thing I have to remind myself of when I see you know, what's going on with the, you know, the, with the commissioners and the executive committee of the SBC and all of that, you know, drama. Okay. You know, I asked the question, okay, is that reflective of what's going on in the individual churches? And I think what you'll find it's a mixed bag. I think that's fair, but I think what I'm hearing from the churches who are trying to do it right is that they suddenly feel out of step. Mm -hmm with the culture of their denomination. Mm. And and I don't know... I was listening to an interview recently that Russell Moore and Beth Moore had with one another, and, and um, Beth Moore said something really interesting. She said, I expected... She was talking about an individual. I expected them to be them. I didn't expect us to be us. And what she's saying there is, I didn't realize who we really were. I thought we were this over here. We were actually this mm. right in front of me. And... And I resonate with that. I think a lot of a lot of people thought evangelicalism was one thing and have realized it's something else. And I think culture comes into play here, which is why I want to get into can cultures be sinful? And if cultures can be sinful, how do we judge that? Mm -hmm. How do we judge whether or not a culture is sinful? What is the norm that we use to judge cultures? Because, you know, let's just use an absurd example. Nazi culture was a sinful culture, right? So we can, I think we have to get to a place of, yes, cultures can be sinful, but how do we measure that? What's our measuring stick for that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it goes back, I don't want to say it goes back to scripture, but it absolutely does. And scripture, uh, just considering the whole council of scripture, right? And you look at even the, um, you know, the trajectory of historical redemptive narrative, whereby, you know, so what is God 
commanding? What is God expecting from his people so that they glorify him? And also considering the context that they were in, right? That's why I don't trip up over some of the, um, you know, some of the law, you know, um, the Mosaic covenant, because what God was doing there was elevating his people above what the surrounding nations were doing. Um, and so it had a, a reason and a purpose, um, you know, behind each, um, each command, right? And so you can take that to, you know, when you look into, um, you know, Jesus's earthly ministry and what he was confronting, right? Where you have this contrast between religious hypocrites and the, you know, the, the weak, the, uh, you know, the mar marginalized. I kind of hate using that word now because it just, it, it, it's taken some, some twisted, um, definitions, but it was, you know, the, those who found themselves who were outside of, um, of society who were, you know, not considered as valuable and looking at, you know, what he, um, how he addressed them versus how he addressed religious hypocrite, right? Then we look to the apostolic instruction, um, the total of the apostolic instruction, not just the parts that kind of fit our, um, our proclivity, right? Our personality. So there is, yeah, you know, there's a speaking of truth and love. There's a, you know, a demonstration of the fruit of the spirit. There's a defense of the faith. There's, you know, this is all combined together to say, okay, what, what ought the people of God should look like? Right. And especially for the pat for the epistles, right? You look at First Thessalonians, First Peter, um, where they're he's, you know, they're specifically addressing people who are in the midst of persecution. What kind of people ought you are you to look like um in the midst of that? In the midst of that opposition? Because we you know when you talk about culture. And especially evangelical culture, um, I gotta, you know, I gotta tell you, it's sometimes it's disturbing to me when I see the the commentary about what are, you know, um, sort of the shift, the the shift in the broader culture that's become, you know, it has become less inclined towards accepting Christianity, um, a little more hostile, right? Which, if you look at it at a global on a global stage. Oh gosh, you know, there are lots of places that have already been there for a long time. Um, and so there's this pushback of, oh gosh, we are, um, you know, our Christianity is being attacked. Well, okay, so how does the New Testament instruct us of what, pe what kind of people ought we to be in the face of that persecution? Um, and so that's what we stick with not the subculture mandate that has been built around how we, how we ought to be. Oh, that's a, that's a good way of putting it, a subculture mandate. We've turned the cultural mandate into a subculture mandate. Oh, okay, tweet that, Lisa. Tweet that, and that's going to that's gonna get out there. You don't remember things so well. <laughs> listen back, listen back. You'll hear it, you'll put it on Twitter. So so I think one of the things that's, that's key there is... Um, as we are building a culture that reflects the kingdom, one that will be then attractive to those outside of our culture, 
our culture building becomes a critique of the cultures around us. And cultural critique is something that there's a it's kind of a, a minefield right now. Our brothers and sisters on the right would take a lot of issue if you critique the culture of the United States. But then our brothers and sisters on the left would take a lot of issue if you were to critique the cultures of minority groups, Latino culture, for example. You know, I'll just use my the culture um, of my father. If you were to critique some of the machismo within Latino culture, if you were to critique um, a anything within the cultural norms, it's immediately pushed back on as um, being unloving, being some kind of like ethnocentric. Um, and, and this is, I guess, what I want to get at. How do we critique culture well, particularly when there is the charge, and it does happen, when the bar for what is acceptable culture is actually majority culture. That's white culture. That white culture then becomes the norm, and all the other cultures that don't measure up are somehow deficient. When that happens... And it, it creates a, a, a situation where everybody's like, well, then you can't critique culture because that's just coming from a place of whiteness or internalized whiteness. It makes it difficult to then actually critique right. the things that you see wrong in a culture because suddenly any cultural critique becomes racist. Because racist cultural critique is out there, it shuts the door on all right. cultural critique and makes it really, really difficult, right? right? And, um, and really, really... So, so how do we navigate that as Christians and as we're building our own culture that will inherently critique the cultures around us? How, how, do, we, how do we do it well in a world where cultural critique is immediately suspect? Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I've encountered a lot of pushback. I've seen pushback, um, you know, for folks who are, I mean, reasonable. I'm not talking about, you know, the you know, the ones who have biases towards certain communities, I'm talking about pointing out uh, the moral infractions. that And for me, that that's really the gauge, right? Is this a, you know, is this a universal moral infraction? You know, is that, can this be considered sinful? And it doesn't matter what the per color person, the, the person's skin is, it doesn't matter. Um, what, you know, what the environment is, it's like there's right and there is wrong, right? And this is, and I have found this to be very disheartening um, when, again, you want to kind of critique um, the moral fabric of, you know, some of the more disenfranchised communities, right? And we can ask the question of like, okay, so what are all of the factors that, you know, that play into why there is dysfunction, right? But that doesn't mean you dismiss the dysfunction. That doesn't mean you can't, you know, you can't point, um, you know, you can't point out where there is um, that wrongness, if you will. Um, and that's, and that's you know, judge based on the word of God and from a universal application. Right. I don't think in any consideration, you know, in any context where we say, well, you know, destruction of property is acceptable in this case versus no, no. As Christians, destruction of property 
is wrong across the board. Murder is wrong across the board. Um, partiality is wrong across the board. And so when we step back and say, okay, how is this applied in a universal, um, from a universal perspective, we ought to be able to say, and if it's backed up by the word of God, this is right and this is wrong. And unfortunately, that's just become a lot more challenging to do these things. And I like what you're, the answer has to be to come back to the scriptures. It has to be that. It's, it's a, you know, if we are going to critique culture, the place to start that makes the most sense is a multicultural book. The Bible's a multicultural book. It's not beholden to a single cultural worldview, and yet it's unified in its witness, which tells us that the Bible is not critiquing purely from, is not, it's not teaching us from a single cultural worldview that can then be discounted. But all these different cultures, I mean, we're talking cultures, many cultures in the Middle East, up into Europe, and parts of the Bible most likely were written from Egypt. So we're talking Northern Africa. Yeah, I mean, you've got three major continents all involved in the writing of the scriptures and unified in their voice. So cultural critique, if it is a biblical critique, mm -hmm. should not be out of bounds. Um, and and it's it's hard to it's hard to navigate that. But I think it I, I think we have to not shy away from it when it's helpful. Right. And, and here's and here's the concern in consideration of what this episode is focused on. When you cannot um, critique those interactions, then what you're doing is um, undermining that creation mandate, right? So if we can't bring, you know, correction and justice to, um, you know, to particular environments, you know, where there are, you know, there have been uh, certain subcultures that have formed, and if we can't correct that, well, then how do we, you know, how, how do we, we, we nudge towards the kingdom? How do we um, act redemptively in that situation if that, you know, if that critique is disabled? It's, it's this, it, it, it then becomes um, disconnected from, um, you know, from the creation mandate. I think that with the creation mandate and with 215 in view, um, we have to hold intention. We are called to critique the culture. That's what it's part of what it is to guard, to keep the garden. But we are also to work it. And I think one of the other errors that we make is there are a lot of people who love to critique cultures but don't actually want to go about culture building. You know what I mean? Like they just want to, they, they want to, they want to sit back and do all the critiquing, but they don't want to get their hands dirty. But what God tells to uh, Adam, which is the, the really a, an encapsulation of what he's going to, what he's told both Adam and Eve in Genesis one, what he tells to Adam when it comes to, um, when he places him in the garden to work it and watch over it, it's a get your hands dirty thing. And so the next step here is it, it is important to be able to critique culture, but the harder work is the building of culture. The harder work is the positive work. And I think um, maybe a good place for us to, to wrap up this episode is to spend a few minutes talking about what does faithful culture building look like? What does it look like for the Christian to actively, positively work 
the creation to the glory of God. Why? Where do I start with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a big one. It is a big one. Um, well, first of all, I think, it, you know, going back to the first two chapters of Genesis, and particularly the passages that we mentioned, is that it ought to reflect a a purpose for which it was intent for which God intended his creation to be right so it's um you know it's facilitating work it's facilitating productivity it's facilitating fruitfulness in that environment so that other you know so that members of that environment can thrive um, and so that has to be, and it has to be one that is layered on, um, on ethics, on, you know, on what God has commanded. In other words, yeah, you can do something that looks like it's productive and looks like it's fruitful, but if, if it's built on unethical practices and principles, well, that's not really culture building. I think that's key is is we can sometimes uh, baptize sin mm-hmm. by saying, well, this is helping us build culture when it's it's actually not. You know, you're not going to be able to build a godly culture when you're using sinful means to get there. Um, but I think one of the things that, that comes up in my head as you're talking about this is it is a culture of life. It's a culture of thriving and it's a culture of life. So So anything that would promote anti-life that would promote death is something that ought not be a part of our culture mm-hmm. and and so that's something that we ought to be to be really really careful of especially as our understanding of death broadens throughout the scriptures because you know we we go from thou shalt not murder to thou shalt not hate in your heart to the way that James even builds on top of that by focusing in on the tongue and the way that the tongue can destroy this death language. And I, I think that's something, what is a culture where we build up with our mouths, build up with our words, build up one another rather than tear down, right? So this is where critiquing other culture can train wreck us if we're not careful. There's a proper place for it. But when all you're known for is being destructive with your words, of tearing people down, when that's your brand, well, then I don't know that you're doing the hard work. You're doing the easy work of critique. But that easy work of critique is now turning around and, and being against the working of the garden. We're no longer building together. We're just tearing stuff down. And uh, in an age of social media, our words are, are potent weapons. Mm-hmm. And, and bringing violence into this world of life and building and strengthening. Right, right, exactly. So we have the cultural mandate. We have an understanding, I think, of, of who we are as humans being made in the image of God and in his likeness. We want to talk a little bit, though, about how some of the... Um, I, I think we need to talk about, maybe not today some of the hot button issues that are out there and the way that sin impacts that. Um, and one of the things that uh, comes up that we're not going to have time for, because we already going for about 40 minutes, we got to let people go. I mean, we, right. you know, they, they don't have all day to hang out with us. Um, we got to talk about creation care at some point. Um, because creation care 
stewardship of creation and then the hot button issues of things like environmentalism climate change all of that i think that's a topic that needs to be broached and maybe we can do that next time and 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 pick that through Mm -hmm. what does it look like how can christians faithfully practice creation care how should we wade through all of the stuff that's out there around this topic how do we do this well um i don't think it's a question of do we do this we're called to steward we've been blessed and called to do this work but what does that look like i think that's where we can have some really good conversations so um are you ready to talk about uh creation care and climate change in the next little while here we'll talk about creation care what we didn't talk about was the covenant of works I know, and we got to do that too. We had some good insights on that, and so maybe next time you we can get into that. All right, so next time we'll get into the covenant of works. We'll talk about its relationship to the cultural mandate because I think it's key. I think it's important, um, and then I think we do need to talk a little bit about climate change, creation care, all of that, um, and and it's going to be interesting because even the language of climate change is really really charged language, and um, should it be? How do Christians respond to this? I don't know. That's, you know, listen, this is a family discussion. This is where we want to disagree well. And so you're going to get a little bit of that, I think, uh, in the next couple of weeks as we start hitting some of these issues. Um, we're also going to talk about the fall. We're going to talk about God's design for gender. We're going to talk about God's design for human sexuality, the way that the fall has impacted all of that. So there's a lot of really difficult and hot-button conversations to come. We just kind of had to lay the groundwork first. Uh, but Lisa, before we kind of move towards some difficult conversations to come, what are some final thoughts about creation, uh, the, the creation mandate and the cultural mandate? Yeah, you know, just be careful that you're not reacting to, you know, to an opposing position, right? You know, we we want to think about this from the context of what has God said, what has God provided, who has God said that we are, right? Who are we, right? As humans, that we're made in the image of God, we are redeemed. So that means that we, you know, we we ought to have eyes to see everywhere that you know, that can be impacted, not just how how do we proclaim the gospel? That is absolutely important. But we can't just minimize our Christian presence to, uh, you know, to to that, to how, how do we express, you know, Christian um, faithfulness with our word? Um, it's also, you know, well, what does that look like when applied? And so I think sometimes in our, in, especially in our environment now, we are so reactionary, right? And God forbid we, sh- you know, we we should be in step with that other tribe, but we want to step back from that and th- and just think about, you know, who 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 are we? Amen, amen, and and that's key to understand the kind of culture that we are trying to build. We must understand who we are as God has created us. We also need to understand who is Jesus. And that can also get so lost in these conversations. Is the culture we're trying to build, does it look like Jesus? And in order to know that, we have to be very, very careful that we're regularly in the scriptures, regularly in prayer, prayer, regularly in repentance. Um, Because the works of our hands are often soiled with sin. 
we want the Lord to be uh, wiping that all away as we are building together uh, a culture that represents Him and that glorifies Him and is about the kingdom of God. So thank you for being with us on this episode of Family Discussion. We will see you again next week. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion.